0: Social progress has always been won by a few outraged, organized, ordinary people. They weren't going on Mount Olympus. They weren't deputized through some angelic visitation. They were just ordinary, outraged people who decided they had enough of oppression. We don't need any messiahs. We need ordinary, organized, outraged people. We do. You do? Hey everyone, I'm Ross Montgomery and this is Code Red, a limited series from the team behind Hope and Hard Pills. We are just a month since the insurrection
1: at the Capitol. This conversation was recorded before the recent inauguration, but we believe the truths about nonviolent resistance require us to be diligent. Here's a conversation with 90K, Andre Henry, and Mitchell Atencio. The world
2: is Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Code Red, Hope and Heart Pills emergency response to uh, what we have seen as the struggle coup. I am Nandi K, project manager at Hope and Heart Pills. And um, I'm really excited about today. We're here with Andre Henry, founder of Hope and Heart Pills, writer, speaker, musician, and contender for the world that ought to be. And also our other team member, Mitchell. Mitchell is a writer and photographer. He works primarily as a journalist and has been writing scripts for this podcast and helping out in a ton of other ways. So you might recognize his design work on People of the World. We're so excited to have him here. Um, What a time to be alive, y'all. We started this podcast uh, the last, yeah, the last time we met, we said, you know, it doesn't seem like this coup is gonna happen and like it's dissolving. So like let's just end the podcast since there's nothing to respond to. And then January 6th happened. So how are y'all feeling? How are y'all doing?
0: We wish we knew, like, we knew that around inauguration day was gonna be some kind of trigger event. You know, the thing that we said before we said that we're gonna like, all right, let's let's not focus so much on creating these episodes was whatever is happening seems really disorganized and like it's happening really slowly. And Trump was talking about like running again in 2024. So it's like, he's not really looking to hold on to power. Now I feel like I'm not like shocked, but I am shook, right?
2: (laughs) I think that's a very fair description.
1: Yeah jane Costen uh, over at the new york times formerly of vox kept referring to this as like the monorail grift from the simpsons and it really it really started to feel that way like trump kept losing in court and every state was certifying their votes and all these things were happening so it felt like okay great we can move away from the fear of uh, a further destabilizing you know quickly destabilizing democracy due to a coup And then, yeah, we had a we had an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
2: Yeah, I know that watching it happen in real time was I agree, totally agree with like, I'm not shocked. I'm shook because watching it on the news, which I don't often watch the news. And this was something that. I got on Facebook and my friend was like, turn on the news right now. (laughs) This is wild. (laughs) And so I go put on like CNN live on YouTube because I don't even have like, you know, cable to watch the news. And I see all these people down to the Capitol and no one is doing anything. (laughs) There's almost no cops present. Um And then I had a therapy session, thank God, because (laughs) who knew I was going to need as much therapy as I needed that day? And my therapist didn't even know it was happening when I got on the phone with her. Um, And it was very like struggling. It did seem very... Not well put together, but as we're coming to find out now, with a little over a week since it happened, it wasn't as unorganized as we thought. There were people helping uh, mm-hmm. who are on the inside, legislatures, yeah. legislators. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Congress people that were like somewhat involved and this is why like we're asking questions like the day of we're watching we're like well first off how did they get into the building you know like and where are the police which there are other videos of some Capitol police trying to stop you know you know rioters from getting in there, um, there the New York Times put out a really good article that covered like that two hour period and showed like the different people the different crowds trying to get into the white uh, not White House the, um, the Senate building right. from these different entry points and how that might have worked But yeah, I mean, we're learning about all these different levels of collaboration from legislators and police chiefs, off-duty police people, uh, veterans, and that makes it a lot more disturbing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good time to kind of like look at the events that led up to um, the insurrection before we really get into those details. So. I don't know Mitchell, if you wanna kind of talk to us about the process of what's going on because we know the work you're doing over there as sojourner, you're covering a lot of this kind of what are what what is the kind of timeline that maybe not everyone was necessarily paying attention to before this insurrection happened
1: yeah, um so i I would say that one of the things about what we saw. On January 6th was that there was a lot that suggested um, you would see something like that happen. Like, you know, it was well coordinated that there was going to be this this stop the steal event. There were lots of Jericho marches the week week before, you know, um, people like. Eric Metaxas and the MyPillow guy are, are down in DC, like declaring that Mike Pence can overturn the election if he wants to. And Wait, I'm sorry. Hold up.
0: Who is the MyPillow guy?
1: <laughs> uh, the the CEO of my. Are you familiar with those like MyPillow? No, what
0: is that? Okay. MyPillow is one of those MyPillow.
1: like really, uh, I don't know, like infomercial type things. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so anyway. wait, there's like a late, like, late night commercial that's like, are ordinary pillows getting you down? And someone's yeah. like, I don't know how uh-huh. to work this
2: thing. I mean, 100%. I'm not, I mean, like, I don't shade about pillows. I was actually pretty disappointed because as someone who has like chronic pain, I buy pillows like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really sad because I've been looking at these pillows for years. I was like, oh, maybe this pillow <laughs> will help me sleep better. <laughs>
0: And now you find out that the guy who makes it is like a white supremacist that mm. wants to overthrow the government. Yes. And...
2: Yeah. And those yeah. pillows were like a hundred dollars, so I was like, "Woo."
0: <laughs> okay, sorry. I know I derailed this, but no, it's. A, I had no. to. I I had to know. Okay, so Eric Metaxas, my pillow guy, are staging Jericho marches in the time leading up to the insurrection. Yes. So
1: while uh, in court and within state legislatures. Um everything was kind of moving along on pace like the Trump campaign kept losing um even even when you get to court like the things that the Trump campaign was claiming outside of court they would then back off of when they got into yeah. uh, a court session and in front of a judge so like you know it just it all seemed very like many like hey we're going to fight for the election but in in truth there was not going to be Uh, Any major uh, issues, although obviously we were very concerned about it because it wasn't business as usual. Um, Right. And on the 6th, uh, Congress got together to certify the Electoral College votes like they always do. Um, Anytime that there's a challenge to those votes, the Senate and the House split off and they will then go debate these on their own. And so that was actually what was happening when the insurrection Began uh, like when the the Senate building started being stormed was senators uh, were discussing Arizona's electoral votes and whether or not to accept them um, on a challenge that I believe was brought forward by uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Okay. Um, and so you know uh, some some I don't want to say like praiseworthy but good we'll say good for democracy things happened uh, later in that day if if you actually back up a little bit you know you can look at things like uh early in the day i think everybody was still kind of on a high from georgia's runoff results mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. we saw john ossoff and reverend Raphael warnock win their runoff campaigns and um that was just like a really it really cemented the work of local organizers and voter initiatives and um people like stacy abrams and then also a lot of like more unknown names of people who've been putting in a lot of effort to fight voter suppression in Georgia. Um, and, uh, you know, Congress did eventually confirm the results after the events, after the the building was stormed and people were then taken back out. Um, you know, the, the states that were being objected to only had six or seven senators who would object to them. It was pretty overwhelming. Um, Even actually, we saw some senators change their mind, like people like Senator Kelly Loeffler, outgoing Senator Kelly Loeffler, uh, changed her mind. She had planned to object to results from Arizona and Pennsylvania and places like that. And after the storming of the Capitol building, uh, she and a couple others decided that they weren't going to do that anymore.
2: Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like really interesting, especially as we get more information about they're actually being inside. I one of my friends said it on the internet, and I've just been repeating it. That we found out that the call was coming from inside the house. Mm-hmm. Um, we found out, you know, the person who organized it, uh, or who was one of the main organizer named names this week. Mitchell, do you have those names of the um, senators that were named? Or legislators yeah, was, that would uh,
1: yeah, legislators in Congress, and I know two of them because they come from the mm-hmm. state that I was raised in, uh, and Arizona. that would be Paul Gosar of Arizona, and also, uh, gosh, I'm trying to pull him up right now. Um, Andy see. Biggs
2: is that it?
1: Yeah, Andy know. Biggs. That's the other one, and then there's yeah, um, a third one from. I bet if I just Google Andy Biggs's name.
2: Yeah. So also, I think that uh, with knowing that like calls are coming from inside the house, we saw people like Kelly Loeffler change their minds. We saw lots of people from uh, Trump's cabinet resign. You know, thirteen mm-hmm. days <laughs> before mm-hmm. their to enduring within their two weeks notice, basically, which is totally. Um, I don't know. What do y'all think about that? I think it's very funny if you like putting your resignation before you about to get fired anyway, you know? And I don't know, (laughs) are they trying to salvage their careers? Like what at this point do they think that they can do? Because Forbes wrote an article, a really strong article, and said to most businesses, if you hire any of these people, Forbes will assume that you lie about everything. And that's what we will write about your company.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't
1: see that. That's specifically good. about, um, yeah. pre- specifically about press secretaries, right? So if you hire Sean Sp- Spicer, or if you hire, um, uh, all these Sarah other Huckabee flew, Sanders, yeah, Huckabee and, Sanders yeah. and folks like that, um, backing up to what you were asking about a little before Nandi, um, Ali Alexander, who is one of the, uh, organizers of this Stop the Steal campaign, um, the Washington Post reported that he said, uh, representatives Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and Paul Gosar helped him plan it. Um, you know, Biggs and Brooks have denied helping Alexander and and Gosar declined, uh, representative for Gosar declined to comment. Um, but, Mm. uh the the reporting from the post is that Alexander said that the four of them schemed up a way to put maximum pressure on Congress while they were voting. Um, and I think that that's something that we're starting to see while there were obviously a lot of people who stormed the Capitol because they were there for a protest and then other people started storming the Capitol. so they went along with it. It does seem like there were some people who were very coordinated and very planned in um, What they were there to do, which was to like try and get on the floor of the Senate and try to in with with their like physical presence, encourage and intimidate
0: legislators into overturning the results of the election. So this brings up a lot for me, you know, um, as you know, this is kind of what this whole my whole mission is about, is about helping people understand people power. How do people organize for change? Right. Um, specifically through nonviolent struggle, which I wouldn't count this as a nonviolent protest since, you know, people, some people came with the intention of taking hostages. They brought flex cuffs. Those are the zip tie handcuffs. Some people were armed. You know, people brought chemical agents and stuff like that. But the underlying idea of power and how how power works is at work either way. To me, whether you use weapons or not, like the idea that if power, it depends on the consent of those who are being ruled, right? And so these people are applying this principle of people power, social power, um, on January 6th. And, you know, the way that they're talking about it is putting maximum pressure on, you know, Congress. I mean, these are... I want to be careful about how I say this because I don't think that we should emulate this by, like, terrorism, right? Bringing, like... Yeah. Bringing flex cuffs and chemical agents and stuff like that, like, But no. they're
2: making some points,
0: though. <laughs> At the same time... <laughs> yeah. Like, they're talking about disrupting, right? You know, and I just think we need to understand that, like, if we don't organize nonviolently for power and for the right causes for the right reasons, then those who are, you know, upholding the status quo, like, they will continue to organize for the kind of world that they want, right? And so it keeps on reminding, you know, me, or I think this example keeps presenting itself that, like, this struggle for this power struggle that we're in, you know, uh, the winner is the one that out-organizes the other. All right, so that these things go together for me. It's like seeing these people resign, what I feel like I've been watching, you know, since the summer especially, but what I feel like what I've been watching is the pillars of support to Trump's regime crumble, right? I think that I first started feeling this way when I saw like nickelodeon put a moment of silence on their channel for to to commemorate not commemorate I guess that's the wrong word but to symbolically acknowledge the the almost 10 minutes that George Floyd was pinned to the ground by his neck right So what you're going to see as the thing falls in nonviolent movements usually, well, yeah, this, a nonviolent movement has actually brought this about, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you're going to see defections. That's what you see near the end, right? So now we see this authoritarian is almost out of office and you're seeing some of, some of his, uh, uh, leading accomplices jumping ship. Like that happens.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was just thinking about how, like, the thought of people power and, like, Trump's kind of cabinet jumping ship. And I was thinking how, like, Republicans, and I won't even say Republicans, I'll say, like, the right or people who align with their values Mm -hmm. totally believe in democracy and totally believe in, like, civil resistance as long as certain groups don't have access to it. Right. And just like we watch Republicans, they never work across the aisle, but Mm. Democrats, right. Are so obsessed with bipartisanship and working with uh, the enemy. Even we heard Joe, I mean, Joe Biden came and made a statement after and he called these people terrorists, um, which is very interesting. It was interesting to watch the language shift so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch the media, and I think this is will be a great place for Mitchell to jo- chime in, just because you are you work in media. But watching the language shift so quickly in the media, all of Trump's presidency, there's been this kind of like playing both sides. And even while I was watching it happen, CNN was definitely playing both sides saying, oh, we don't know if they stormed the Capitol. Mm. We don't know. And then within like hours, it was like, these people are terrorists. Um, (laughs) How? (laughs) Yeah. And like (laughs) protesters, we don't know what happened. And then everyone's calling them domestic terrorists. They're calling them uh, what other... All the, they didn't call them thugs, obviously. We didn't hear any of that language. They did call
0: them anarchists, which is wrong, but they called them that too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, Andre, you and I both tweeted about how upsetting it was to watch people referring to them as anarchists because, like, I know a lot of anarchists and a lot of them are rather peaceful people, but also they're like, they're calm, they're collected, they're organized, they just have a, a political philosophy, just like a Republican or uh you know uh, someone who is is politically liberal not in the right or left sense but mm-hmm. in the like liberal democracy sense yeah um and yeah i think that as we've watched over these last two weeks it's become significantly easier to um jump ship or to like bring some level of quote unquote accountability um when one there's less time in which someone could react poorly. So like think about Twitter deciding Mm -hmm. to ban Trump. Uh, They did that two weeks out, like a little over two weeks out from the end of his presidency. And it's a lot easier to Mm. justify than if they had tried to do that, you know, a year and a half into his presidency with two and a half years to go. Um, And I think the same thing for the administration officials Mm. who are leaving, you know, it's very easy for them to leave because well, I mean, what were you? What were you going to be doing in two weeks anyway? Where you? Where were you going to be then anyway? Mm. Um, mm. And and even um, you know, looking at the way that media or news outlets or or politicians have talked about the events of January sixth, um, I think a lot of them do feel like you know now is the time for us to stand up. Now is the time to like really protect democracy when it's at its most fragile. Um, I think that that's probably why you even see Trump doing these like little videos that he did where he would sit down and be like, oh, these these events were terrible. We we totally Mm -hmm. condemn all of the violence and and we need peace like these things that clearly do not line up with what he says when he has like no filter and no speech writers. Um, But I think you see him saying those things because people are pressuring him into doing so.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, He said it with the same conviction of like a kid on the playground who's being forced to say he's sorry to somebody hit. Right. It's like, I'm sorry, you know, like mumbling it. We know what it sounds like when Trump like is really passionate about what he's saying. I want to say when he believes what he's saying, but I'm not even sure that he even believes the bullshit that he says sometimes. But But anyway, we know what it what it sounds like when, like, he's committed to his words in some and
2: way. And also, yeah, his initial response was like, see what happens when people get mad? That was his initial Twitter response, right, is that right. the people are angry. Look what happens. Right. The people are angry. He completely supported it and then has, like, threatened Joe Biden since, which is yeah. completely wild. And the the conspiracy theories about what's going to happen on inauguration day has been like really wild. I do want to talk about some of the details of the insurrection, what happened in the buildings because um because it was uh there was help from actual legislators. There were yeah. really crazy things that happened. Uh Rep Ayanna Presley found that all the panic buttons in her office had all been removed. Yeah. Um, AOC went live and is saying that there's things that happened that she can't even talk about. Um, She didn't even feel safe in the room. We've had senators test positive for COVID. Those numbers are growing every day because they're in offices, hunkered down with anti-maskers who they work with on a daily basis. Nancy Pelosi's location was given away on Mm. the internet at some Mm. point. So um, when we look at those details, kind of first, how do we think the response could have been better? because we also know that of all, there were over a thousand Capitol police scheduled to work that day, maybe over two thousand, and only five hundred showed up for work as well. So like we know this and the and the superiors also couldn't even be reached at this time by their employees, by the people who were there. So, how do we think this could have been handled better? Especially because I think like as a group, this is kind of something that we've been anticipating. Right. And even though we kind of thought the threat was gone, it still happened. But if we can see it, it's like regular people who just live regular lives. Like, why couldn't the government see it or all these people in charge? I mean, it was coming from inside the House, but you know what I'm saying.
0: Well, the thing that I want to say, too, is like the thing that we were trying to prepare people for was for the government. Right. We were we were trying to prepare for the Trump regime to try to hold on to power. Right. Um, Which in a way they Mm -hmm. did. But the thing that we weren't really, you know, talking about a lot as a group was you know what if trump's base you know tries to like attack the government you know during during this time you know yeah i've
1: i've thought a lot about the idea that trump might have uncanned something that like he couldn't even stuff back in if he tried Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. like i don't think that there's any amount of You know, respect the election. Okay. I'm, I'm done. I've, you know, Joe Biden's president. We need to move forward. There's no amount of that that he could do that would convince a lot of the people who were. In D.C. on January 6th, um, partially mm-hmm. because they're totally convinced that whatever happens, Trump is still in control and he's going to like he's already done these things around uh, state militias and the space force is involved and he's going to arrest all these, you know, like the crazy, crazy conspiracy theories. But even beyond them, for the people who just like really resonate with this white populist, white supremacist message that Trump brought. um, they're convinced that they have a legitimate shot at power and at affecting the way that the rest of the country operates and runs. And you can even see in some of the congressional leaders who have said, we don't want to impeach because that's going to make these violent, angry people more violent and angry. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, we don't want to hold Trump accountable for his part in inciting this insurrection because that's just going to make them more angry. Um, Like that, that's proof that what they did had some effect and worked in some way. And we we should and could try to convince those congressional people that like, no, the way to hold people accountable for their bad actions is to actually hold them accountable not to allow them to just continue what they're doing um but but you know we should respect that that this happened um because people power because people showed up because people wanted to do something and they they did it um and so it's i think it's important for us to like respect that while also noting why we disagree with their methods why we disagree with their goals right. why um you know various elements of what they're trying to do is is not similar to what we saw over the summer um
0: yeah you right. know and to to i think that that ties into really what you talked what you asked Nandi like about us like how could this have been responded to better like i found myself in the moment you know forgetting you know the thing you know the very the very ideas that have you know i've dedicated my life to over the past few times because i I'm like, where, where are the Capitol police? You know, cause we know what would have happened if it was, you know, if it was a bunch of us, you know, black people, you know, or just even, even people just under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Right. If we had been at the Capitol building that day, you know, trying to tear down barricades and break windows and, you know, peeing and pooping in the, <laughs> in the, in the right. Senate building, like it wouldn't I, I don't think it would have been the the Capitol riot. I think it would have been the Capitol massacre. You know. Yeah. And um, you know. But so I find my, I find myself while I'm watching it, going like, Where are the police? <laughs> you know? Why are they stopping them? You know? And I think that this is this is. I, I really did have to wrestle with you know, um, my my support of defunding the police. You know, while I'm sitting there wishing that there was more police presence, you know, while this thing is happening. And I wrote about this on Medium and I, I, you Mm -hmm. know, I can say the same place that I came to was that like, yeah, at the moment, at the moment, the best line of defense that we had, you know, was, was our police, you know, but that's not the best that can be imagined, you know. Right. So, I mean, I think that what could have been better in this case was, you know, for... D.C. to have taken seriously what the FBI already told them, Mm -hmm. which is there is going to be some kind of possible violence happening. I mean, we were talking about it. Just us ordinary people posting on Twitter as Mm -hmm. much as we could Mm -hmm. (laughs) saying, you know, we are concerned about post-election violence. We know that the potential trigger events are going to happen election day, around election day, around the time the Electoral College votes are counted, mm-hmm. uh, around the time the electo- Electoral College votes are certified, and around Inauguration Day. We knew that, yeah. you know? So why weren't the Capitol Police preparing for it, you know? Now, in the future, and and, and because that's our best line of defense, I mm-hmm. think that it's fair to say, like, we wanted that. that could have been handled better if they had taken that seriously and prepared for it, you know? But ultimately, in a world where we want less policing or no police, you know, or no police, right. You know, that um, Gandhi's words come to me right now that like if the choices are between nonviolence and inaction or uh, sorry, if the choices are between violence and inaction, then violence is obviously the better choice. Mahatma Mm -hmm. Gandhi said that, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and because that's the position that we were in on January 6th, then, you know, we should have had the police doing what they claim that they're supposed to do. But they've proven (laughs) that they're not paid to do what we say that they're paid to do right? Obviously, because they didn't do that. Yeah. Um, but moving forward, I think of the work of Gene Sharp, who, you know, he uh, he mm-hmm. has, his political imagination has always been challenging to me because he wrote this uh, treatise called Making the Abolition of War a Realistic Goal, where he is literally talking about how nonviolent struggle could co- could completely replace conventional warfare around the globe. If citizens were trained, Uh, In the principles and strategies and tactics of nonviolent struggle, if that was our common sense, you know, so in the future, I would hope, and this is something I'm really wrestling with, like, as we talk about what the work looks like for us over the next couple of years, Mm -hmm. is like, how could we make, you know, nonviolent struggle a part of our country's common sense to the point where You know, when we talk about the anti-coup, most people know what we're talking about, right? right? And that there are uh, structural, you know, provisions to help with preventing coups, as well as a populace that knows how to fight nonviolently against these things.
1: When you talk about America and American democracy in this way, in this religious language, in this very praiseworthy way even yeah. when you're saying oh we've we've uh we've not lived up to this praiseworthiness that we should earn or we've mm. already earned i think you're cementing the ideas of american exceptionalism right. and you're cementing the idea that it can't happen here you know right. in journalism there's a lot of talk about like how would we cover this if it were happening in a foreign country right. and that's because typically journalists approach things that happen here with um Like a little bit of rose-eyed glasses, I think. And so, you know, you you ask questions like, well, what would have happened if we watched like the center of legislative power be stormed by the losers of an election or the base of the loser of an election in an Mm -hmm. attempt to overturn Mm -hmm. the election results? Like, would we really have struggled or even contemplated calling that an insurrection or a coup? Would, would, would media have struggled to name that as like anti-democratic action? Right. Um, and, and so I think that that can be important. And, and so to kind of tie that back to what you were saying, Andre, about what do we, where do we go from here? Like, I think that part of our imagination has to be imagining that like, we are not as good as we have pretended to be, which is something that I think is a, a bigger challenge for white people and for people with. Like financial resources, people who've been like financially secure in America for most mm-hmm. of their lives. Um, and I think that's really where you know, people like me have to take a backseat to um, the words of, of people like you know, James Baldwin or Martin Luther King or James Cone, um, because these are people who've written about this in, in for, for decades and centuries.
0: Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like the American exceptionalism has been strong this entire time. Like even when we were yeah. talking about leading up to these moments, like when we were talking about the election time, I remember saying to people, I'm not assuming that the election is going to just go as usual. I'm not assuming I didn't even assume we would have an election. You know, right? like I wasn't even assuming that the election was going to happen. And we kept running into this American exceptionalism in our talking about, you know, the anti-coup because people could not wrap their heads around the the idea that this kind of thing could happen in the States. And we're still to this moment, you know, I'm getting messages from, you know, white supremacist trolls on Twitter when I said we're all living under white supremacist terror right now because we are, right? These, yeah. these white supremacists have threatened to storm more capitals as inauguration day approaches that is a threat and people feel uh, some many people feel afraid right that is the definition of terror and i still have white supremacist trolls in my mentions going no we're not you know oh, this is okay. stupid right and mm. it's like we're not we're not learning you know or i i it doesn't i'm not sure that we're learning i should say you know in America, And a part of this American exceptionalist, like, we have to look this in the face and realize, you know, as Dr. King Day approaches, that even Dr. King said, and where do we go from here, that the goal of some of these white people is to impose a sort of fascism. It, it, it's a quote. He talks about how fascism is a problem in America after the Civil Rights Act has been passed. After the, the successful Montgomery Bus Boycott, after the March on Washington, this is the, the the year before his last year of life, and he's still talking about fascism, how fascism is a problem in America. We have to look that in the face and look at the ways that America has been the exact opposite of the place that it claims to be. If we ever want to do something about it, if the if the idea of America can be salvaged.
2: Yeah, I think, Andre, once you said in a Hope and Heart Pills email, um, like the winner of the story is who has the best narrative. Mm. And so when we talk about like American exceptionalism and also what I always observe is like a clinging to like nationalism when these kinds of things happen. It's so interesting to watch social media kind of over these times of seeing people being like, we need to change this country or, like, I want to leave. And then when something happens, all of a sudden they're so loyal Mm. to the U.S. or so loyal to this country now. And, like, this is not who we are. And I Mm. always find myself being like, who is we, right? Because (laughs) when we talk about seeing these people who are at other capitals, like, I saw the Austin Capitol where there were armed militia in Boston. I mean, Austin, Texas. Right. And... Like some people are scared, but let's think about like who's really actually scared. Right. And why that why these people are allowed to do this. You know, when we go back to comparing it to the summer, BLM, people who came out uh, to support the movement for black lives when they came to D.C., they were in public space. Or they right. were allowed to assemble and they right. still were maced. They were still beaten, unprovoked. They were peaceful. And these people walked up to the Capitol building. Right. They were let in, as we've also seen footage of people being let in. Right. Um, It's completely different. And like when we say we, <laughs> it's right. like when it's like that's not who we are. Like I know <laughs> right that we're talking about mostly white people and like we can't we, we people are saying like these things are anti-democratic except they're not like mm. what those people did is democracy mm. right but only some people are allowed to have access right to actual true democracy in this country it's limited by like who's in power whose voices um are higher. And Joma Aloo, in her most recent book, Mediocre, which I'm reading, talks about how the how kind of Trump's lobbying against higher education also has a lot to do with his base, because he doesn't want white men to go to college Mm. so that they're exposed to all different kinds of people, all different kinds of ways of life where they're, you know, most Democrats have a a college education or went to college where if you look on the right, most people have like a high school education or less. That's by design. Even Mm. Trump went to a super fancy school, even though he has come out against higher education and people with fancy degrees. At the same time, he bragged about it. So we talk about like democracy, like that was democracy. Public assembly, civil resistance. It was democracy. It's just not the ideals that benefit Even those people who were there, I would say like, so when I think about moving forward and like the narrative game, like the people who are in power, they don't want to like face it because it's them looking in a mirror. Right. Mm -hmm. At all the things that are wrong with this country, all the progress that has not been made. They have to look in a mirror and then they have to say, like, what am I am I willing to give something up? And that's where we are right now. Like Mm. people don't want to give up anything for the thing that we're saying, like we're imagining and pushing forward. They want to somehow have that and also have exactly what they have right now.
0: Yeah. Like you're making a good point about like how how democracy has been practiced. Right. Like because a lot of times when we're talking about democracy, we're talking about an ideal, you know, that has never, at least in this country, And I, I can't, the only reason I'm saying, at least in this country is because the country I know, I know the most about, you know, but at least in this country, it has never been an ideal that applies to everyone. Right. And that's why, you know, we do see like when black people have been exercising their right to assemble and people who have been, uh, assembling under that banner, when they assemble to say that we don't consent to being ruled this way you know there is military response we see tanks in the streets sometimes we see tear gas and chemical agents being used against nonviolent protesters we saw that we saw like federal agents snatching activists off the street you know uh last last year you know in response right. but then when we see like these other people who i mean come on let's let's be real the the right to bear arms was You know, supposed to be a part of people being able to stand up to the government if they feel like it's being tyrannical. Right. Which is why white people feel so entitled to pick up their guns, even if it's like, hey, there's a there's a deadly pandemic going around, which means that y'all can't sit inside an Applebee's right now. People are ready. Some people are ready to pick up their guns and fight the government over this, mm-hmm. willing to kidnap their mayors or governors or whatever over this. Right. And that's why white people feel entitled to it. And when we talk about the American Revolution and all these things like this violent revolution that was fought in the fought for democracy to found this country, you know, white people, they feel very, many of them feel very, you know, um, attached to this story. They resonate with this. Right. Uh, but when we talk about black people organizing you know, because we have felt like this government has been tyrannical, you know, it becomes a whole different story. So I, I totally hear what you're saying.
1: Yeah, you you can look at like Ronald Reagan passing assault rifle laws when he's governor of California yep. in response to the fact that the Black Panthers are peaceful, but armed and very openly armed mm-hmm. Uh protests right and Mm -hmm. so i think you're right that whenever the ideals or or rights or or laws that america has prided itself on has ever been attempted to apply to non-white people um it becomes very quickly like they they can see all the reasons why you're not in favor of these things and and talking about trying to draw a connection a little bit between what we saw on january 6th anti-maskers and the difference between that and like Black Lives Matter movements or the civil rights movements, and this is kind of a question for you, Andre, but I've been thinking about how the difference in their tactics and their Mm. training apply to what they expect in those moments Mm -hmm. and also to like how we should respond to them. So I think about how King and SNCC and people like that, they were training to be arrested. Like that was not something that they didn't think was going to happen or shouldn't happen. Obviously, in a moral way, they thought it shouldn't happen, but they knew I'm going to go to this thing. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be attacked by police dogs. And the whole point was to show people right? How right. unjust the rules were. Compare that to an anti-masker who's trying to get into a Trader Joe's and they're like completely offended that, that the police are showing up or that they're not being allowed to participate.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, these people in the 60s and 50s were organizing for human rights. They were organizing for the right to be treated as a human being and as an equal in this, you know, alleged democracy. And exactly like you said, they were preparing to be beaten. They were preparing to be, you know, um, assaulted and they were, uh, they were preparing some of them even to die, uh, because they knew that not only the police, but they also understood that even just their regular degular white neighbors would be, which first off, shout out to Alicia Crosby for teaching me regular degular.
2: Um, uh, um, shout out to Cardi B. Uh, Cardi B is a regular, regular chick from the Bronx. <laughs> Shout out to her for that. <laughs> um,
0: but they knew that their white neighbors would be among them, spitting on them, putting cigarette butts out on them, beating them, pouring milkshakes over their heads when they sat at counters. So they they were not preparing to harm anyone, right? They knew that their very presence in a whites-only establishment would put would make their white neighbors uncomfortable, and that it would cause disruption. Right, but without intending to cause harm to anyone. Right, they they're not showing up with their own weapons, like we saw on January sixth. Right, that's terrorism, you know, and and the people who are showing up on January sixth are literally trying to overturn the will of the people. You know, the, Joe Biden won, right? He won more votes than Donald Trump. And these people are trying to say, okay, regardless of that, <laughs> we we want Donald Trump to remain the president. These things couldn't be more different, you know? And then, you know, when we talk about anti-maskers in particular, mm-hmm. you know, okay, look, wait, before I get on that, I keep think about this woman was what, it Elizabeth from what Knoxville, they call with Knoxville with the yes. onions? Yes. With the onion in the towel, yes. child? El- You're right. Elizabeth from <laughs> Knoxville is crying on camera, talking about, they pushed me down and base me. And I'm like, <laughs> what did you expect? You did you know? the remix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you think that you were just going to walk into the Capitol building and nothing was going to happen? But and so they what did. were you trying to do? What's a revolution? It's a revolution. I'm like, well, how do you... How do you think revolutions go? Like, do you think that you just like kick down a door somewhere and people say, OK, man, this is the way to the Senate chamber if you would like to terrorize your, your Congress people? That's not how that goes, you know.
1: Well, so I, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, no, I was just going to say that, like, that is exactly what they expect. And maybe for good reason in in some elements when they're mm-hmm. having help from Congress members or even. Um, mm. I know that Representative Jim Clyburn said that his office was like vandalized, and he's got an unmarked, like hard to find office. So he was like, "I don't know how they could have found where my right. office was." Yeah. Um, but then, it, you know, wh- what you're saying there makes me think about a quote that I saw from a, uh, one of the insurrectionist people who said something like, "Why are the police treating us this way? They're supposed to treat Black Lives Matter protesters this too. way." I saw that, and too. what that is is like an admission. That as much as I think a lot of, you know, like the Capitol police got a lot of thanks from the Senate floor on that same night, like for, for saving them, for protecting them. And, and as much as people might want to imagine that like police failed, I think that in the words of, of that insurrectionist and in what we can see clearly in front of us, it's just a show that like police are, are not a function of like serving and protecting um, right. They're a function of oppressing and protecting like capital and wealth and protecting upper classes and things like that.
2: Yeah. And I just want to point out that all the capital police that were individually recognized were black. I just want to point yeah. that out. Yeah. Black people saving themselves <laughs> as usual and somehow simultaneously saving everyone else as we do. Um, When thinking about kind of like, where do we go from here? We're just a-, a few days, four days from the inauguration. Um, I just saw that the New York Times reported that a man was arrested in Washington with unauthorized inaugural inauguration credentials, an unregistered handgun and 500 rounds of ammunition, the police said. So I'm expecting, obviously, like... <clears throat> more yeah. violence to happen yeah. over the next few days I also yeah. remember that like Trump is having some kind of like not inauguration like either on the day after the inauguration or something some kind of event that's been going around for weeks Andre what have the the study the the scholars of resistance the overthrowers of of fascist (laughs) regimes (laughs) you know what what advice would surja give us right now
0: well there are a few things i think that are important to remember first off you know there's a lot of talk about people who want to fight fascism and they're like you know this is fascism you know and when they say that they mean like we need to adopt like more radical tactics like People need to be armed in the streets. People need to be out there punching Nazis in the face and stuff like that. Now, before I say anything about that, let me just offer a caveat. I do not believe in nonviolent struggle as like some kind of weapon that I'm going to like sit on my high horse and tell people what tactics they must adopt in order to fight oppression. Like that's not what it's for. And for some people, that is the extent of their commitment to nonviolence is that they're just telling other people that they shouldn't, you know, you know, use other tactics. My my commitment to to nonviolence is not on principle. It's not a moral principle to me, moral philosophy, although I know that many, you know, do engage it in that way. It's about strategy. So uh, I say all that to say that we should not underestimate the power of nonviolent struggle. Uh, I think that people talk about nonviolence And they say, well, how are you going to be nonviolent when they're going to shoot at you? Or They're they're not going to be nonviolent with you. That was never the case, right? In every case that we're talking about nonviolence being successful in toppling authoritarians, stopping coups, all that kind of stuff, we're talking about unarmed people fighting against armed people. And that is actually the power of nonviolent struggle. That's how the mechanisms of nonviolence work, right? You can get into that. I mean, a good a good PDF to download on this is called "Making Oppression Backfire." Um, it's by Atpour uh, or Canvas. Um, it's by Surges People. So that's so that's one thing is to remember like the power of nonviolent struggle. Uh, but also, like I would not recommend that people just take to the streets, which I see a lot of that rhetoric going on, where people is just immediately like, "We need to be out in the streets confronting these fascists." I don't agree with that, especially since these people are armed. Right. And you're going to be in active shooter situations. I don't think automatically, I'm not saying not at all, but I'm saying like not just automatically, not without thought, not without strategy. I would instead focus on power holders. Right. Like there if there are white supremacists in your area who are claiming or threatening to, you know, attack, you know, a Capitol building or something like that you know, to hold people hostage, I would go to your authorities and and put pressure on them to say, what are you doing to prepare for this or to respond to this, you know? And also one thing that I would like to know, you know, and I would h- encourage people to try to to connect with their, you know, leaders on this, is to make sure that their leaders know that when we're talking about a coup, the most important things to protect are not buildings, Right. You don't have to protect the the capital building. The Capitol building is not the government. You need to protect the legislatures and stuff like that. So I would be trying to work with them too to see like what are their plans, right? If there is some kind of uh, power grab, like how do they plan to continue the function of the constitutional government, even if these armed people try to protect these buildings, right? So that's one thing. I think that I think that everyone that I know that is a that is a nonviolent proponent. Would be saying right now, don't underestimate the power of nonviolent struggle, and then also remember that it is the function of our society that we need to preserve. Right? There are two things that the that the coup planners need. They need legitimacy and they need compliance. Right? They are already in a crisis of legitimacy. Most of the country does not believe that they are correct or that they are right. But they do. But we do need noncompliance. I think that's I think that's the thing that that stands out to me the most. I, I'm, I'm sure that I had more, but it's going to come back to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, Mitchell. I wanted to ask you too. I know you're going to tack onto what Andre says, but I also want to. No, ask No, I had a question you,
0: actually. For him, oh, but great word. Go, no, I, I
2: wanted cursed. to ask you: How do you think like the media can be responsible in this time on how they report um, the things as they're happening? Because it's happening every minute. Obviously, I just saw something that was reported five minutes ago today from the New York times. How do you think the media can like responsibly report this compared to kind of how they've been reporting everything else, uh, for the past four years?
1: Yeah. So, um, I think some of the practices that I've already talked about, like asking questions like, how would we cover this if it happened in a, in another country, um in a way that can reinforce if if not done carefully that can reinforce like our concepts around other countries being lower than us but if you're doing it properly what you're actually doing is trying to recognize that you have your own blinders and your own blind spots for your own country because you were raised here and you know the national anthem here and you like understand that red white and blue means something um my other advice like if if I'm being asked advice for how media should should respond to all of this is like, listen to black people um, like that. That should be like the number one lesson from the last five years is like black people and other people of color have been saying everything about what we saw from, you know, November 3rd to January 6th. Um, and, and they've been saying that that was a very real possibility, that that was very likely to happen um, both in media and outside of media. And for a long time, I just think that 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 was not taken seriously. I think that's like an institutional bias, um, an institutional expectation that that the norms of other institutions will continue. Um, So I think that should be one of the biggest lessons that the media learns from um, what we've seen. And I would also, as we talk about like, you know, everyday individuals engaging with media, um, I would encourage everybody to like take time and think about um, your media diet. Like where do you get what you listen to and what you know? Um, it can't be said enough that like verify, verify, verify before you reshare something or repost something, even when something like seems very accurate or even when something seems very much what you expected to happen. Um, just like go read the whole story. Like every time, just go read the whole story before you hit retweet. Um Before you share it with your friends and your group text, like just read the whole thing, understand what you're actually looking at. Um, And and then also like hold hold journalistic institutions accountable by having conversations with them. Um, Like don't don't berate reporters for what they get wrong, Um, like engage with them when you can especially at a local level. Like, yeah, the, the average New York Times reporter probably will not see your reply tweet in, in the sea of reply tweets that they're getting. But you can probably write a letter to the editor of your local paper or your local news station. You can probably get them to listen to your concerns and what things you have to say. Um, and I think that goes for like politics too. Like start talking to your local state legislators and your governor and your mayor Um, about all those things that Andre was talking about before. Um, I was going to ask both of you, you know, one of the things that I think we're seeing in (laughs) the wake of all of this is a lot of people who are um, at minimum acting like this has been a wake-up call for them. So, you know, you've got people, I think, both who were anti-Trump and who were pro and who were kind of like, you know, maybe in, in the middle um, starting to realize that like, oh, he really is a dangerous threat. Um, and just, saying just things now. like that, right? Yeah, just now, yeah. just now realizing, <laughs> just, uh, which goes back to my my second point about, you know, uh, listen to black people.
0: <laughs> just, just now, just all of a sudden. Wow, Trump really took a turn there, didn't he?
1: <laughs> yeah there there was a there was a tweet that said something like, "Boy, that escalated steadily over the last five years." Yeah, and it's like, yeah, exactly. That's the, this did not come out of nowhere. Um, oh man! But the the question I want to ask is for those people who do seem to have like some potential to maybe change from the way that they've been operating. How are we supposed to, and how should we engage them and hold them accountable for their words and actions, and still like you're shaking your head at me, Andre? Is this? <laughs> a, I, I don't know if this is a bad question, but no, it's not a bad uh, <laughs> question.
0: But like, I got I got some people upset because, you know, so on on social, actually a while back, I posted, you know, that like when people are waking up late, you know, we could say to them, welcome, it's been this way for a long time, let's get to work, right? So we reposted that this week and we got some really angry comments, you know? Uh, not re- I shouldn't say really angry. We got some people who were like, uh-uh, blah, 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 you know? Um, And I get what they're saying, right? It depends on, it actually, I think it depends on what you're doing, right? Because like, if you're trying to organize that, you know, that three and a half percent that we need, to move right, for me as someone who's inter- interested in organizing that three and a half percent as an organizer, the thing that I'm going to say to people who are waking up late is welcome. Let's go. I don't have time. I don't have time to sit here and and be like, well, where were you in 2016, how come you didn't notice then? I I don't have time to do that as an organizer, as a person. <laughs> oh yeah, you go get the side eye. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna text Nandi about you, <laughs> right. But as an organizer, I'm like, all right, like, all right, come on. We ain't got time to talk about it. So I, that's why I mean, I think it depends on what you're doing. Like people who, you know, you know, if you're not organizing people, uh, I think it's fair to be like, OK, where were you? Especially or or oh, oh, just now. Right. Especially if you come from a persecuted minority community. Um, I think especially white people who are trying to organize that three and a half percent should definitely, you know, put on your patient hat, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and remember that just in April, you were also, you know, sitting down in Applebee's, you know, thinking about, you know, whether or not Black Lives Matter is a controversial slogan, (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. right?
0: And remember that you were that person in April and, you know, doing your best to bring them in.
2: Yeah, I'm not an organizer. So I definitely think like, you're here, but you are late. Yeah. Um, and it's very important that you know, like, how late you are. Mm-hmm. And it's important that you know the reasons why you are late is because yeah. you don't think that Black and brown people have a right to the same rights as you enjoy every day. Those yeah. are the things that you need to sit with if you're just waking up. You yeah. should be listening listening. <laughs> You shouldn't really be saying anything unless you're literally regurgitating what you've heard from trusted Black thinkers and Mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Because especially if this is your first wake up call, you have a lot of issues that... You need to work through things that you've allowed. You allowed Trump to call Mexicans murderers and rapists. You allowed him to, you know, gut schools and you most likely voted for him. Also, if you're just waking up, you may have voted for him twice. So if you're just waking up, uh, welcome to America and welcome to uh, your life. White supremacy. Uh, We're glad you're here. But you have a long way to go um, and you have a lot to learn to even be up to speed. So I just recommend that y'all just be quiet, listen yeah. and pay reparations while you're learning.
0: And even like I also want to add to what you said, Nandi, because I agree with that, that it's, I think it's OK for organizers to have that attitude as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, so when I said that, I also just want to reemphasize again, like that's how I'm res- you know, that's how I'm trying to respond, you know. Yeah. But I think that it's fair for people who have been on the receiving end of America's anti-democratic praxis, you know, political praxis for centuries to be like, yeah, dog, I'm not impressed that you're waking up right now and we're not going to throw you a welcome party either. You know, that's that's fair. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. And if I can kind of give an approach of what I think journalists need to do is mm-hmm. like, don't fall for the false and um, like save face apologies of yeah. various people in power. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that like you have to be immediately rejecting any any turn about but you should be skeptical um Mm -hmm. like you know i saw that senator james langford like apologized to black residents of of oklahoma uh, Mm. specifically like in tulsa he was like hey you said that Like this was going to happen and I didn't listen and I did these bad things and I'm sorry. And like uh, while I commend him for apologizing because that's not something we see in politics often. I also remember the 2012 Republican Party that said like we lost because we didn't take minorities seriously and Rand Mm. Paul saying that like voter suppression was a big deal and them saying that like we need to become a multicultural party, not like a, a white party. And then what happened in 2016 is they went the opposite direction. Um, so and 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 then all the people who wanted to go that direction fell right in line with Trump when he won. Yeah, So I would just say that, like, especially when it comes to institutional power and institutional authorities, like have a very skeptical eye on anyone who benefits from apologizing mm-hmm. or benefits from looking like they've turned a corner.
0: Yeah, you know, that brings up something for me, too. Like, when we when we initially started talking about this, I was thinking more, like, about, you know, individuals, right? Like, I have a bunch of white family members that I don't talk to anymore, right? And I'll tell you what happened when they came back around to me, like, I think after a few years, maybe three years when after I stopped talking to them, and they started sending me messages saying, like, oh, I see that you were right, da-da-da-da-da. I just didn't respond. Because I didn't have time. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like the the pace at which you're waking up is still like not something I have time for. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm running, I'm running to organize a three and a half percent. You know what I'm saying? So like you done moved from the passive opposition to the neutral space. Right. I still don't I I don't have. That's not who I'm working with. I'm working with the passive allies from active space. But I still think that somebody's work is to say to them, well, that's good, Jacob. Like you know. Now, yeah. did you know this at the other? I think that's somebody's work. Now, but when we're talking about power, when we're talking about like Starbucks posting mm-hmm. on, you know, in June that Black Lives Matter. Now that's that's me, That's me. when I say, okay, we'll prove it. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's, wh- that's where I say, put your money where your mouth is, you know? And I would say too, like Nickelodeon and all these other companies that all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, like, we need to not quietly say that, oh, we support what you say, but not your methods or whatever. Now we feel pressured to say Black Lives Matter. No, I don't I don't just say a simple naive welcome to them. Mm-hmm. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah. It uh, makes me think of sorry, whenever you say like power, I always think of like that scene in Game of Thrones where Cersei like demonstrates her power to Littlefinger when Littlefinger um threatens her Mm -hmm, to expose mm -hmm. like her relationship with Jamie. spoilers if you haven't seen um Game of Thrones too late for you yeah it's your fault at this point yes Cersei has this moment where she says seize him and the guard sees him she said "Uh, cut his throat and then she says wait I've changed my mind step back four paces turn around And they all do this because Littlefinger says knowledge is power. And Mm -hmm. she goes through this whole thing and says, no, power is power. And so I think like when we also think about people with power who are showing up late, when you say prove it, like, yeah, you should be proving it because you have actual power to prove it. It shouldn't just be a statement when you have the power to kind of shift thinking in such a big way.
0: You know, I, I think of like a biblical example, which, you know, I think of Saul, you know, who was a Pharisee, you know, right. uh, for those of you who are not Bible people, don't worry, this is not a religious podcast all of a sudden. Right. But there's a story about this guy who was, you know, he was a Jewish zealot, but pretty much a terrorist. You know, he was killing people who claimed that they followed Jesus. One day, Paul or Saul, you know, is t- saying that he met Jesus on on the road in some vision and now he's a Christian. Well, the thing that they don't do is just say, "Yay, the former, the the former, the the former zealot who used to kill us, terrorize us, is now a Christian. Now he can just come into our community and you know teach and stuff like that. He's got to spend three years, you know, learning about uh, learning about you know this faith that he claims that he has, you know. And so they're very wise about welcoming welcoming him in, you know, and that's kind of what i feel about you know folks with power you know and organizations and stuff like that that are like okay well now they want to you know now they're in like are you bandwagoning you know mm-hmm. did you feel pressured because everybody was saying you know your sales are going to go you know the 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 stats on support for the black lives matter movement fluctuated so much last year because right after the death of george floyd support like according to polls mm-hmm. support for the black lives matter movement had they soared. They skyrocketed mm-hmm. up. And then by by August, I think it was, it was yep. by the fall, whenever it was, the polls were showing that support had waned, you know, by then, right? And so, you know, we need to know, like, are you really, are you really down? The thing that I struggle with, and this is what I wanted to say, you know, um, mm-hmm. is that I have a conviction that hope is the thing that really... Uh, sustains people in pursuing justice, you know? Um, There are other types of fuel, you know, anger is fuel, frustration is fuel. Shame might even be a kind of fuel to get people involved and to get people acting. But I really do believe hope. And it's not, to me, I mean, I I hope that by now people who have been following me understand What I mean by hope, because when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about some unqualified, you know, conviction that everything is going to work out fine. It's just being open to the possibility that things can change. Right. So that's the thing that I think really sustains people. And partly that's personal. Right. Mm -hmm. Like when I was just doing this out of a out of a sense of grief and anger and all of that, not that I don't still have those things, but that was like Mm -hmm. the primary thing. Um, It was just hard to sustain. I wanted Mm -hmm. to die, you know? I was suicidal, you know, because I just could not see. Um, I couldn't see it changing. But then when I studied more about Mm nonviolent struggle and I saw the analogy of history that taught me that if the people done it before, the people can do it again. You know, hope became a much more sustainable fuel. So when people say that they're coming to the movement, you know, or they want to be involved now, the thing that I struggle with is I don't, I don't know, I don't want to give them. I don't think that responding with shame or shaming them, you know, is going to sustain them. Not that not that they shouldn't ever feel, you know, um, self conscious about anything or whatever, or that we should just coddle them for their comfort. But I don't know. I wanna give them the fuel that will sustain them. Right. Right. So the balance that I try to hit is like to not coddle them. So I'm not like I'm not like gonna go buy balloons and a sheet cake and confetti and, you know. Yay. Yeah. Dear, <laughs> yay. Welcome. You know, yay, you're finally waking up, you know. But I'm gonna say, yeah, come on, you know, like and give them something to do and hopefully give them that same kind of conviction, the information that they have to come to the same conviction, that through our collective action, we can make a difference.
2: Well, I think that's a great place to lead things. Everyone, you have your marching orders. I hope over the next week you stay safe and, you know, yeah, do the best you can. I'm Nandi K. Uh I've been with Andre Henry and Mitchell Atencio. We'll catch you on the next episode. And if you like what you hear and you want us to keep doing the work, please check out the store, check out uh, all the merch we have. And thanks so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Nandi. Thanks for listening. The Make Oppression Backfire PDF will be linked in the show notes. You can support the work by visiting andrehenry.co. That's andrehenry.co for merch and music, as well as the Patreon, patreon.com andrehenry. Until next time, friends, be aware and stay diligent.